0: You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer just, just now. Great God and most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you and your, your goodness, you have um, uh, been kind to us, that you have um, blessed us in many ways to be uh, a participant in the proclamation of the gospel. We ask, Lord, that you would refresh us this evening with testimony of your goodness in this way that we too might learn from brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and would be encouraged by their faithfulness. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Locate in your Bibles tonight, the New Testament book of Acts. And in just a moment, I'm going to read uh, briefly from Acts chapter 14, verses 24 through 28. Uh, it we we will read from verse twenty four to twenty eight of Acts chapter fourteen. Set this in context: the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have been traveling on a missionary journey. They have been going from place to place, planting churches uh, and uh, encouraging them and establishing them. Um, and um, it's uh, fantastic. We have a young preacher going on over here. Um, but we, um, we, we, when we go to this particular passage, we come to the conclusion of that missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are passing through Pisidia. Um, and they come to Pamphylia, verse 25. When they had spoken the word, that is the word of God, that is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. Let me read that again. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples." Um, it's been actually quite a while since I've been out of the, um, the, the, the country on a ministry trip and so many ways hindered, but the Lord opened doors and we were able to travel. Um, uh, Iliana first just to spend time with her family and to tend to some personal business in Ukraine and um, uh, then me later, 10 days later, went uh, there. Uh, The purpose of of my time in Ukraine was um, to do ministry. It was to, um, I would like to say, build on foundations previously laid. But with so much time elapsed, it felt in many ways that the purpose of the trip was instead to relay a foundation on which to hopefully build again in ways going forward. It's only right and appropriate that having gone out and now having come back, that I, I tell you something about that time so that you can be encouraged and so that you yourselves can be uh, challenged and helped in your own, um, uh, your own devotion to the Lord. We can learn from brothers and sisters in other places. Similarly, we can, um, uh, we can be encouraged to go to other places and Uh, declare the message of the Lord. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. That was the practice of the early church. They would gather the church together and then they would declare all that God had done with them. So it's, it's not about what they did. It's about what God did with them and what God did through them. Uh, i re- I say that because I remember quite a few years ago, um, giving testimony in the context of um, uh, some meeting or other. and there there was a, a young fellow who took issue with it at some level, um, because it was it, it was a report. He said it was a report basically, of the various things that I had done, the places I'd been, the meetings I'd had. And I was thinking, that, that is important, is it not? I mean, if I am accountable to you right, as, as your pastor, but I'm accountable to you, I'm under the authority of the gathered church, I'm sent out with the church's blessing, contractually, when I became pastor of the church, it's in my contract that, that I'm encouraged to take such trips and to do such things for the advance of the Gospel, so why should I not report to you? Only if I only if I had some some other reason, something I wasn't so proud of, or something to to hide. I, I, I mean, and I don't. So I must come back to you and report. But I want you to be clear that this is not again about what I have done. The, the young fellow missed the whole point. The point was to lead him to learn lessons, to be encouraged to service, to give God praise. It has nothing to do with me, even if I'm telling you stories or accounts or various things. I want you to be encouraged. And this is what I told him. I tell stories so that one day you can be the one telling the story. I hope that makes sense. I gather the church and tell them what God has done with me so that one day you can gather people and tell them what God has done with you. If, if you're like, well, I, you know, um, sometimes we, we, we have space for that. We encourage people to share testimonies of God's grace. All you have to do is text me or call me and say, hey, I have some stuff I want to share with the church. Can I run it by you first? And we can talk about sort of um, uh, you know, how that, what that would look like. But we encourage that. What worries me is when people don't have a story to tell. Um, And I'll keep telling stories. True stories, right? (laughs) Not telling stories in that sense. Uh, I'll, I'll keep telling true stories of God's goodness and God's grace and how God has worked with me and through me and in me until someone else says, okay, Ryan, you can sit down give me a chance. And I would be absolutely delighted for you to be that person. But tonight, it's, it's, it's me, and I'm get, we've gathered you, and you are going to hear uh, words of God's grace. I'd like to frame this, though, by telling a story. It starts in the 1860s, 1866 to be precise. In a, um, a rural, obscure region of what is now Ukraine, but which then was um, um, a a larger region that was a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Poland as we would know it now. Um, Geography has changed massively within the past, even 30 years in fact. So uh, there are some substantial differences. But what we end up with is uh, a, a, a little place in modern day Ukraine Middle of nowhere, and suddenly, loads of Germans and Poles are moving into the area. These people had come to faith in Jesus Christ under the ministry of a pastor in Hamburg, who was close friends with a pastor in London. The London pastor was Charles Spurgeon. The German pastor was Johann Anken. Johann Onken. Was persecuted in Germany just a little over a hundred years ago for being a Baptist pastor. The practice of baptism in the middle of the 1800s, the baptism of believers, was extremely controversial. And so um, Onkin's baptizing people, but he's also suffering for it. They're marginalized, they're pushed out they feel very defeated. It was only when a great fire tore through the city of Hamburg that they gained some credibility because their church was filled with working class Germans with practical skills to rebuild the city. And the church, in many ways, led the effort to rebuild their community in the wake of that fire. It's an inspiring story of how Gospel faith combined with social initiative to bless a hostile city that actually hated them. They began to train and to equip people from all across Europe to go out and do evangelism. To take gospel literature with them. To start churches where there were none. And among those that were uh, were gathered was a group of 25 or so men who were brought from all across Eastern and Central Europe to Hamburg to study. Just for a few months, 25 men studying under the leadership of this church with a view always not to staying and serving that church, but to being sent out to serve elsewhere. One man in that number went back to Ukraine And began teaching a group that had already begun in a house. He began to baptize. A church was constituted. And the next thing you know, they've outgrown their building three times. Within the space of just a few years. The building that stands there now is um, an early 20th century construction. Uh, it was not that long ago that they celebrated 100 years. When you think about it, next year, we'll, we will have to find some way of marking 100 years of this building. I don't know if you've noticed, but outside it says 1922. Um, so 100 years of gospel witness in these four walls. But in that, that structure, they had this massive building, much larger than ours, beautiful very definitely not Ukrainian architecture, German architecture. And they continue to grow. They continue to evangelize. It was a rural community. It always has been. But they have had thousands and thousands of people who have been members of that church. So sometimes people look even at our own society and they see rural communities or, or little places, and they're like, oh, we, you know, nothing can happen there. I walked up to this building and it's surrounded by wheat fields, and it always has been. But there's houses that way and that way, and settlements there and over there, and people would gather. Thousands of people heard the Gospel in that building, not over the past century, but really just over those first few years in which they grew and they grew and then they went. They sent people out. They planted churches in other parts of the region. And they continued to grow and to expand. Then the Russian Revolution came. Uh, just before 1920. And you have a period of time in which the, the newly formed um, USSR was pursuing a policy... Uh, that if you were if you want to research it later you can um, Google Marxist Leninist uh, anti-religion policy. That was what it was called. The Marxist Leninist anti-religion um, um, uh, policy it was uh, one of these very cruel things where they had it running from um, uh, yeah just basically I think 1919 around there to 1925. And just when they, sh- uh, or 1927 rather, just when things were supposed to get better, when the policy came to an end, they renewed it. So the next round was exactly the same year as the first round ended, and it continued to 1935. They brutally oppressed the Christians of the um, uh, Soviet Union. They were not allowed to gather, they were not allowed to evangelize, they were not allowed to meet, they were not allowed to uh, have Sunday schools, they were not allowed to bring their children to church, they were not allowed to to interact um, with other people about spiritual things at, at any level. And then finally, they began to tell the churches, you have to close. You have to stop meeting. And in a place as rural as this town in Zhytomyr Oblast in um, uh, northwestern Ukraine, just a few kilometers south of the border with Belarus, the, um, you, you have a place that can hide a bit longer, maybe? So they were able to keep meeting until 1930s, 34, 35 or so. And then... You can only go so long without attracting attention. They're told, enough. Your last Sunday is this date. Govern yourselves accordingly. Well, so they have to make plans. The pastor was um, a German by descent. And so, this, this man's like, where do I go? He can't very well go west. He's a Christian. And these are the days of, of, of Nazi Germany. So they're not friends. He can't say where he is because they're closing the church. Sometimes it's easier to hide by going closer to the enemy. So instead of going west, he goes east. And he hides out as a night watchman on a cooperative farm. So you weren't allowed to have private property or private farms or anything like that. So you have a community that's operating the farm and running everything collectively and he's hiding out as a watchman. But he's discovered. They know who he is. They find out he is imprisoned. Why? Because he was a Baptist pastor. No other reason. And in fact, when they captured him, he was minding his own business. He was working on a cooperative farm. But they arrested him. They gave him eight years. He died two years into the eight years. He was not an old man. They treated him very poorly. So the question is, did the church die when it closed its doors? Did the church die when the pastor who was a husband and father of, I believe it was seven children, did, did, did the church die when he had to move on? Did the church die when the building was taken over by the government and was appointed by court order to become a hay barn? And the answer is no. The church did not die. Of course, the universal church endures. The church shall never perish. There's a hymn that we sing that sometimes says that. And the truth that we sustained ourselves with over the past week, that Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, sustained the believers there in that context. They, um, they met in houses. They met secretly. They continued to baptize. They continued to study the Bible. They continued to have prayer meetings. They continued to to engage one another secretly compared to what you and I might be used to doing. But nonetheless, they were engaged with one another, ministering to one another, proclaiming Christ to one another. The church did not die. It continued. Meeting, as did the early church, underground from house to house, in the fields around that church building, there was a man by the name of Mihail. Mihail would take the hay into the building and remembers today driving heavy machinery through the doors of that church. That building is not a hay barn anymore. The church endured. In the 1980's, as recently as that, 1988, the USSR released all prisoners of conscience. Prisoners of conscience were those who, as the name implies, they were imprisoned because they had a conscience about something. And they wouldn't bow to the prevailing norms of the atheistic Soviet government. They believed that, in this case, that as we heard this morning, Jesus is worthy. And so regardless of the social pressures that were opposed to them, they would commit themselves to worshiping God and to proclaiming the Gospel. In 1988, all prisoners of conscience, including quite a few Baptist pastors were released. But there, there, there still was not the liberty of conscience, the, uh, the, the liberty of, of worship, nor was there a free Ukraine until 1991. August of 1920, 1991, uh, 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 not 21. Here we are 30 years later, just two weeks ago. They celebrated 30 years as a nation when they were instituted as a nation, they put religious liberty in the Constitution. There is freedom to proclaim the Gospel of Christ in Ukraine. You can gather publicly, openly. You can evangelize. In fact, there are things that they do evangelistically there that I don't think we could get away with here. For example, I've told you before about large groups of like 30 plus people from churches just showing up at local hospitals and walking from ward to ward in Mass singing songs of the Incarnation of Jesus and proclaiming the Gospel message in December and January. I don't think we could do that here. Could I? Maybe. But I don't know that I could just rock up with a group of you to Whittington or North Mid and we just all burst into song on the topaz ward. I think that, I think that you have to uh, probably jump through some hoops or you have to have some inside people, and I'm not even sure if then that would work. But it's, it definitely wouldn't work now. That's right. But there they go doing their various things to reach people with the Gospel. No, the churches are not perfect. No, they're, they're beset by, you know by, by many things that... We might know, and things that we might not know, they may look to us and envy us in ways. And there are ways I look to them and envy them in ways. But we can learn from each other. I told you about Mihail, who was gathering hay and driving heavy machinery through the doors of the hay barn that used to be the church. I keep stumbling over his name for some reason, it's easy to say, Mihail was um, um, appointed pastor of the church in um, 2000. And he remains pastor. He's in his 70's now. He used to bring in the hay, but now he brings in a different harvest. The church shall never perish. Why? Because Jesus Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are things that we have perhaps seen and experienced uh, that give us cause for concern over the past year and a half or two, or even before that, various precedents that are set, various attitudes and actions that are taken just even at an individual level that perhaps I've heard from some of you make you uncomfortable to be open about your Christian faith in certain environments. I see people nodding your heads because I think that's been your, your experience at some level. The church shall never perish. Jesus Christ will build the church. But the question we always have to ask is, are we the church? And what I was saying this morning, what would you do in those situations when the doors are closed and they say you can't come back, your building is now Office space. Flats. You know, we have a housing crisis, so it would probably be flats, wouldn't it? Um, you, can't, you can't be here anymore. And it's, it's not simply a matter of, okay, we, we really need to get on top of this. Here's you another property that you can meet in locally that can be yours, or we'll build you another space. We just need this. Because those type things happen and have happened to brothers and sisters across our own city, and that happens. But the, to say, no, you cannot worship the Lord together anymore. What would you do? What would we do? Would we close the doors? We could close the doors. It would be sad, it would be heartbreaking. But our faith is not married to this building. Would we gather from house to house? They say the, the Englishman's home is his castle, and I, I don't know, you know, um, uh, you know exactly if, if that is true, but I think a lot of people are a bit sensitive about having people into their homes. I think they're, they're confusing entertainment with hospitality, and so they think they have to have a really nice, plush place to have people over, and they're afraid of judgments being passed on, you know, oh, the wallpaper is peeling here, or there's a crack here, or, you know, maybe things could be a bit tidier. But hospitality is to say, come round, sit on our overstuffed settee sing with us, pray with us, read the Scriptures with us, and we'll have a simple meal. Whatever we were planning on having today, tonight. It could be proper food. It could be beans on toast. It could be a tin of soup. It's Christian hospitality. Come round. Let's in love serve one another. So as I think about that story and as I think about the endurance of that church in a very difficult environment, uh, facing all manner of hostility over its 150 years of existence, I, I, I take hope. I take hope not only for our own situation, I take hope for others that we serve in Ukraine who are still suffering great hardship in their own ministry context. For over a year and a half now, we have supported Vadim Kaczynski in Sushki, Ukraine. And although there is um, religious liberty constitutionally, it is not as straightforward in that particular world nation building system. You see, here, we might face pressures, right? Being who we are in Christ. But there are charities that are set up to represent us who might help us with finance. There are institutions and organizations that will fight for Christians through the court system and advise them. And we've seen time and time again bad court, not, yeah, even bad court decisions that have been reversed, but bad decisions in the workplace or in various environments reversed. Police overreach. um, uh, Reverse. People compensated even. You don't have those type setups in Ukraine. Similarly, we we have um, within our uh, system means of appeal and means of of going and um, directly addressing this with accountable government authorities who can assist us. Even if they don't agree with us, they have the job to defend our right. There, certain religious personalities can make coercive decisions that block out people of our faith and practice from meeting, from gathering, from worshiping, from doing evangelism, from even doing charitable work. The deem had hoped to show me three villages where they want to see other churches planted. But the question remains, how are they going to plant? Because they don't have a place to meet. They don't even have people in those villages who are still meeting with them because the people have been scared off by the priest. The Orthodox priest, who is apparently uh, quite insecure and feels threatened by the presence of, of this small group of people in a dilapidated house in a rural village. Oh, if you so, There's something off about that. You know, you, 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 you're the local representative of the institutional state church. And you're worried about 15 people that are gathered for Bible study in an old house that's falling apart, but is the best place that they can use to meet. Why? Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. And weakness and foolishness of the world is also. The world says that's weak and that's foolish. But the world is frightened of that. Because there is something strong about people who, whatever they face, whatever opposition they encounter, continue to meet. To pray, to sing, to preach, to do evangelism, to love their neighbors. So I found. It quite discouraging at one level, but also encouraging at another. We pass through these villages and he would say, we used to work with that school, but the priest called them and they won't work with us anymore. The children came to us instead of us going to them. And we gave them gifts and we gave them clothes and we gave their families food. And then they went to the classroom in their new clothes or with the toys that we gave them. And they were enjoying and their classmates mocked them because they were gifted these by the Baptist church. And so those doors seemed to have closed. We went to um, um, uh, that village hall, and we were going to have an evangelistic event, and the night before the priest calls and sa- the priest rather, the hall calls and says, we, "We can't do this. Why? Because the priest had called the hall and said, "Don't work with them. do not allow them to meet. They are a dangerous cult. through slander, libel, lies. Doors have been closed. And yet, in the grace of God, they have a dilapidated building, a house that they've renovated, the core, and the two rooms on the side, they're slowly but surely improving. There's a new floor that's been laid in one of the rooms. It was rotted through last time I saw it. New floor laid thanks to Your gifts. There are windows, new windows. Last time I was there, they were paper thin and um, unstable. And the wind was howling through them and it was ice cold. Sub-zero temperatures. It was probably warmer outside in the winter than it was inside. Now they have windows that are not unlike our own. Glazed windows. Sealed. Warm. Doors that have been put in place. Why? You're like, oh, that's just fabric. That's not impor-. It's important. I mean, it's just... Think about it. You're like, oh, um, you know, I want to see my money being used for Gospel purposes. It's a stumbling block to the Gospel when you're an unbeliever and you're invited to a gathering and you walk into a refrigerator or actually a freezer. And you have to sit in a freezer to hear the Gospel. And uh, you, go, you go home. You thought your place was bad, but that place was worse. You'll, you'll just stay home. your kindness as a church, your generosity as a church has blessed them in ways that they are able to more effectively serve their community. All of the doors of local uh, facilities have closed to them. Public halls are closed to them because no one wants to be seen to work with a man who has very good standing in the community, but is still the Baptist pastor. And so he is not to be respected at an institutional level. There was, um, uh remember when I was talking about systemic injustice from Zechariah. You know, scales that not, are, aren't even, that aren't level. That's what's happening in his environment. But they persevere. They keep preaching. They find a way. They start where they are. They work with what they have. And they proclaim Christ and they love their neighbors. It was my privilege to, um, to preach to them while I was there. They had... Um, um, Let's say if you want to visualize the room, it's basically from uh, uh, let's say the corner of this table here to the back row. I think that's fair. Maybe a little wider into the aisles. So we have, you know, um, cut off. It's one third the size of this room. I would say roughly. Let's go with that. And they're they're in that room, fifteen to twenty people. I preach. I was asked to preach on baptism. The same message that I preached to you not so many weeks ago. Vadim had watched and he, he knew I was preaching about that, so he wanted me to preach it there. I thought he was just trying to make my burden light. But then I find out that the only people who were baptized in the room was Vadim and his wife and me and my wife. Everyone else, including Vadim's own children, um, have, have not yet publicly professed faith in baptism. And he wanted them to hear that message. He wanted them to know how they could be baptized, how they should be baptized, why they should be baptized. There were two people sat there who were very attentive. I, I, I thought, well this man looks like a deacon or something. I knew they didn't have church officers appointed yet, they're not that mature as a church, but. I was like, this, this, this man is really into the, the message. He's listening. He was there when we walked in. He was there, I think, before everyone else. I later found out that that man's not even professing to be a Christian yet. That's Vadim's father. And the woman is Vadim's mother. And they only started attending the church in January of this year. But God is working in them. Because after well into sort of late middle age, after years of there being some distance spiritually between them and their son, they're coming to sit under the ministry of the Gospel from their son. And God is drawing them to Himself. On the front row, there were children. They were um, attentive throughout. They sat and listened. They were not um, well clothed. Their clothes were not clean. They were not well fed. They looked very, very thin. They are children of alcoholics. Their parents were not in the service. They were there because Vadim and his wife have loved them and cared for them. Given them clothes, given them food, try to help them. In the middle, there was a row of other women. Grown women. These women are adults. But Vadim and his wife have known them since they were teenagers. Since they were minors. And they cared for them then. Now these women are grown up. Now they're married or getting married. They keep coming back because they remember when they were children and they were loved and cared for. So sometimes sometimes when we do mission sometimes when we do ministry sometimes when we are supporting church planting work or we're we're looking at the people that we support I know there are there are churches that their approach is to talk about numbers how many are attending And I'm sorry but but 15 normally is not a number that's taken seriously Suppose that that 15 stays 15 for a long time. It doesn't matter if that's different people. In fact, that might make it worse. You say, oh, it's, it's not always the same 15. Oh wait, so there's people that, are, that were there that have moved on and they just can't hold on to people? Well, it's a village and so people move. They go to the town and the city where there's work, where there's opportunities. But we're missing the point. They are doing pioneering Gospel work in a community that has not had any local church gospel witness ever. There has never been an evangelical church in that village, or in that cluster of villages. And they are planting in a place where the grip of the orthodox priest is so strong, it's like something you'd read of in a medieval history textbook. But. They continue, they persevere, they endure. I wonder if we would be as strong, if we would be as enduring, or if we would, we would be discouraged in such an environment. People are not interested, people are not um, responsive, people show interest, but then it's like the people who came to Jesus and Jesus said, you came to Me not because of who I am, you came to Me because I gave you your fill of the loaves. I fed you. I gave you bread. That's why you came. And I know in our church we're familiar with that sort of thing where there are people we love, where there are people we care for and they come for the food, not for spiritual food from Jesus Christ. We share the Gospel with them. We proclaim Christ to them we believe that one day God might break through their spiritual darkness and bring them to repentance and faith. That's why we endure. We do what we do, not, not because we're, we're doing it to lure them to believe the gospel. We believe that Jesus said not only go and make disciples, Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself. Vadim was discouraged while I was there and he was telling me about you know, people he feels like just use them sometimes. And he's like, you know what? I just think I'm just going to, 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 to preach. And I was like, well, you, you need to love your neighbor as well. You're surrounded. Don't be discouraged. There are children in your church whose parents abuse them. Whose parents neglect them. Whose parents love the drink more than they love their child. They need your love. No, things might not be moving as quickly, but they need to know that God loves them and that you love them through God. It was an encouragement to be with them. But There were so many other threads that were, were going on. We, we spent some time with them. We also spent some time with another um, man. And I'll, I'll, I'll close with that testimony. Some weeks ago, um, actually, end of July, I got an email from Andrew Birch. Andrew Birch was pastor of the Reformed Baptist Church in Palma de Mallorca. I've known um, Andrew for quite a few years, and uh, Andrew recently moved from Palma to, uh, back to the UK. Um, uh, some people would wonder, what, what's that about, Palma de Mallorca? sounds... Sounds very fine, um, uh, but he is uh, back in the UK because he 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 wasn't in Palma for for tourism. He wasn't there for the sun. He was there for the gospel, and um, uh, now he has an opportunity to lead a ministry called European Missionary Fellowship, um, which uh, seeks to facilitate church planting across Europe. So. Um, Andrew and I have discussed various things over the years, and um, we, we have viewed our ministries respectively as complementary of each, of each other. There are things that I do that he does not do. There are things that he does that I do not do. And the more we can grow in our um, um, organizational cooperation, probably the better. So Andrew emailed me and said, I have a friend who um, uh, is going to be... Um, uh, looking at moving to Ukraine soon. His name is Vadim. Different Vadim from the one we support. Um, Vadim with an I instead of with a Y. Okay? You can rest easy, Charles. We've not been scammed. Um, uh, Vadim with an I lives in Sacramento. He has lived there since he was nine years old, but is fluent in Ukrainian. He is on the pastoral staff team at Emmanuel Baptist Church, a Reformed Baptist Church in Sacramento, and has been studying at um, the Master's Seminary, um, and has has um, recently decided it's time for him to leave the states and go back to his homeland. So. Vadim gets in touch with me. We have a chat over Skype and I, I'm trying to figure him out. He's trying to figure me out. We're not sure exactly you know, what's, what, what's going on. But I, I ask him um, um, when he next plans to be in Ukraine and he says, I'm going to Ukraine in August. And I said, oh, really? I'm going in August as well. Where are you going to be? And he says, I'm going to be in um, Jatomer uh, Oblast. And I'm like, no way. I'm going to Jatomer uh, Oblast, Jatomer region as well. Um, and uh, he said, really? What, w- uh, what week?" I said, what week are you there? He says, well, I'm in a few different places across this week, but I'm in Jatomer Oblast the weekend of the, uh, the 15th of August. I'm like, that is the weekend I am there. So we had to meet. It just seems like God's pulled something together. And um, uh, this guy from Sacramento happens to be in the same place as me at the same time. And that wasn't planned by us. Have, we had to chase that, see what's happening, right? So, so um, I, um, uh, I asked him who he's going to be with. And he, he said there's a man in a place called Chernyahiv. His name is Anatoly. Um, not my father-in-law. Um, uh, I've not been scammed by my father-in-law. It's, you know, it's a different Anatoly, a different region. It's a very popular name. Uh, Anatoly is, um, uh, is a pastor and church planter in uh, the region. And he has the same confession of faith and the same beliefs that we do. And I'm like, well, Vadim should know him, but he doesn't. And so I need to introduce them. So I'm like, Vadim, if you come down with Yana, your wife... And we can introduce you to to Anatoly and his wife and and, um, Vadim with an I from the States. And uh, us, will be there. And we'll we'll just meet and we'll see what God might do. We sat at the table and Anatoly and his wife had provided some very nice food. And um, we were talking. We were getting to know each other. Um, Vadim shared his testimony and talked about his work. Anatoly shared his testimony and talked about his work. Anatoly then said that how all of this began for him, in um, 2004, a, a group of Americans came over and began running programs, uh, training programs. He couldn't remember where they were from. It was some obscure place. And, you know, he, he, he didn't remember their names off the top of his head. They were not well-known people. They weren't from a famous organization. They were just people who had a heart to equip church planters and pastors for ministry in indigenous environments. The more he talked, the more it just sounded familiar. The content of the teaching, the type of people who were teaching? The place they came from? I, I said, do you remember where they were from? And he said, no. I, I, I said, okay. Because I, I, I knew some people from Arkansas that used to come up. And he said, oh, some of them were from Arkansas. Some of them were from Arkansas. Okay. Um, do you remember the name of the organization? Not really, but... International Church Planters, I think. In the 90's, my dad was president of International Church Planters, ICP. He facilitated the move of that ministry from its headquarters in Memphis to our rural local church in uh, Arkansas and anchored that ministry to our local church. The church where I grew up. The church that really in so many ways formed me. There's a flag of Ukraine in the church, actually. Um, I remember when my dad and a group of men from the church were hanging that flag, along with the flag of the UK and the flag of other countries that we have an interest in. Because although we did not yet live here, and although it was the early days of even exploring, uh, we had not actually even been to this city yet, um, uh, now that I recall. That's weird, isn't it? We had an interest in this country. We had an interest in Ukraine. We had an interest in other nations. The nations weren't there in our homogenous, rural, Arkansan community. But we were gripped by a message of Scripture that told us to love the nations and to go and preach Christ to the nations. The man um, Anatoly learned under was named Bill Williams. I knew Bill Williams from the time I was three. I know I knew him from the time I was three because one of my earliest memories is my fourth birthday party and Bill was at my birthday party. His wife, Onita, was a school teacher. And she was my Sunday school teacher. Bill died last year. When my family moved to the UK, he took over the ministry of ICP. My father had tried many times to go to Ukraine. Ukraine. He had links in Belarus. He had been many times in Belarus. In fact, had he not gone to Belarus, it's very probable that we never would have ended up here because it was while he was in Belarus that he was convicted to uproot our family to a place where we had greater access to the nations. He never made it, but his successor did. And trained this man, and through no planning of my own, I sat in that man's church and heard him telling a story that just sounded very familiar. And we saw how our paths had crossed. Do you remember um, at at New Year's I was talking about um, life, the tapestry of life, New Year's Eve? And I was talking about Esther and how it seems like a mess and there's all of these threads and they don't seem to make sense and they don't seem to connect. But when you turn it over, you see the way God has woven the threads of our life together in ways that we could never have imagined to create a beautiful picture. I don't know what's going to happen. But one thing I know is the church will never perish. And Jesus will build His church. He'll build it here, he will build it elsewhere. He will continue to raise you up and equip you to go. There may come a time when you go and not me. I would love that. I know Vadim would love that. He'll put you to work. You're like, oh, I can't speak Ukrainian. Oh, it's too much for someone to translate for me. Oh, you don't have to speak Ukrainian to, um, uh, to do building maintenance uh, to repair a dilapidated House to make it more worship worthy, as it were. In fact, uh, you know, your, your presence in the village may be something that gets people's attention. They wonder what's going on there. People from around the world come and support them. What's, God is at work, God is doing something. Indeed, He is. When Paul and Barnabas came back, from their journeys, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them. Now that must have been a long meeting because I, I, I was not gone but a week. And I have not declared all that God did with me on that trip. But I've told you a few things that I hope encourage you and um, give you a bit of a picture. Ukraine is a very troubled nation. It's troubled politically while I, I was there. We heard this incessant roaring from our accommodations and I walked out and all down the road tanks trumbling trembling down the main road. Coming from or headed to war in the East. People are are worried what's going to happen? Is Russia going to invade fully, full scale? Is you know are our American allies any good for anything anymore? Or will they dump us like they've dumped others? All sorts of chaos, corruption. They're not only politically troubled, they're spiritually troubled. And yet there are places where the gospel is being proclaimed faithfully. Hard working pastors. Some of them, like like Vadim, who work he drives an ambulance now, and his wife runs a small farm, and they serve their community and the church. Another pastor of a church where I preach, Valentine, he he's a builder. We had tea in his house, and um, his house on the ground floor is a shop, a building shop. It's like you know um, B and Q, but at a local you know mom and pop level. Um, and uh, there in his driveway, he has all of the, these products, tiles and cement mixers. And you know I was kind of wondering about what it'd cost to, to buy a lot of stuff from him and you know get a white van and drive it over this way, Probably a little, <laughs> little more trouble than it's worth. But um, great craftsmanship, great work, hard work. He's planted two churches served as an evangelist in a third church, he built the buildings with his own hands that each of them meet in. And he continues to do that. Whilst being foster carers to I lose track of the number of children at the same time, always in six-month batches and the emotional roller coaster that that is, plus being a parent, a father to his own children and a husband to his own wife and pastor of a church in the town. That's a work ethic, is it not? That's someone who's captivated by the worth of Jesus more than the other offerings of this world. What about us? Let's pray that the Lord continues to help us in our own place, but also to even as we learn from them and are encouraged by them to help so far as we're able. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your blessing would be upon Vadim Kaczynski and the many uh, people that he uh, is friends with and works with in various churches across the region. We pray for the village of Suski and the surrounding villages that you would um, uh, awaken them by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would revive them according to your grace. Father, take these stories And uh, uh, I pray that you would encourage these, my brothers and sisters, with them. I pray that they would be inspired, encouraged, that they would be driven to faithfulness, to ministry, to um, creativity with their time and gifts and effort to serve you in their own context, in their own way as you enable them for the upbuilding of the church. Father, take the gifts that we make this weekend, either uh, by way of cash offering or transfer, and use, use those gifts. Use them to bless our brother and his family. We pray, Lord, that You would continue to use us. Um, we are weak, but You are strong. We are foolish, but You are wise. So use us in our weakness and in our foolishness to be Your power and wisdom in Christ to the nations. In Jesus' name. AMEN.